0: Following now to next episode is one of four podcasts with local manufacturing leaders rising to meet the challenges and opportunities COVID-19 has presented. Today's episode features Mick Arnold, CEO of Arnold Packaging, and Christopher Helmrath, founder and managing director of SCH Capital, discussing the importance of maintaining agility and creativity when the need to shift your business strategy presents itself. Manufacturing in the mid-Atlantic today is not going to be the same manufacturing environment that we're going to see in the years to come. COVID and the pandemic have changed the way that operators and entrepreneurs in the Mid-Atlantic are gonna operate, and specifically how manufacturers are gonna operate. Today we have Mick Arnold of Arnold Packaging with us who's gonna give us some of his insights and take us through some of the history of their company, how they've evolved to the customer's needs and how they're probably going to evolve as we go into the future based on the changes we have. So Mick, thanks for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So let me just take you back. I know it wasn't you, but generations ago, your business started in the early 1930s as an adhesives company, It is an ink company, and today you do so many different things. Maybe you can give our listeners just a couple of minutes of insight as to how Arnold has formed itself to what it is today, but really where it was, and some of the real key pivot points that you've made historically because of economic changes and customer needs. Yeah, sure, so uh, 1933,
1: four generations ago, I'm fourth generation, so it was started by my great grandfather at the base of the Brahma Seltzer Tower on Lombard Street, so you're right on. Early on, we were a manufacturer of adhesives, If you think about how you close a box today, you would only ever think about a piece of tape and it's film and it has adhesive applied to it. It didn't always work that way. What you used to do is you would blend together adhesives using animal fats. You'd brush them onto the minor flaps. That's a smaller flap on the inside and you'd hold them together until the box stayed shut. So that's how it started. And then also because of the railroads, there was a lot of marking applications. So again, today you'd find a pressure sensitive label or you'd find an inkjet code on a box Long ago, that was done manually, could be done by hand, written on the container. And you have to remember, too, that so much of packaging evolved early because of military needs. A lot of the specs, the early on specs and packaging were written because of the military and by the military to get munitions, rations and things from place to place. So a lot of the birth of packaging really came from the
0: the, uh, military world, not the commercial world, which few people know. Interesting. So let's let's come into a little more of today, just even in the last five or 10 years, you've gone from not just how do I package something for a customer so it can be shipped, but you really started to think about what are the needs of the customer and what can I deliver to them to help them with that, whether that be the security of the product, whether that be helping them deal with labor issues and labor costs and how automation and data could make them smarter. Talk a little bit about how in that time that you've run the company, you helped to transform some of the newer things that happened pre-COVID that were really leading edge in this community.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's the mandate of, of every company to be profitable, right? So. We peeled it all the way back and thought, what can we do to help our customers be more profitable? And for the longest time, we stopped short in talking about things like cost reduction, but never really uh, made the link or the connection to profitability. So we peeled it all the way back and said, all right, what tools do we have in our toolbox that we can use to make our customers more profitable? And how can we do it in a very quantitative way? Something that we can we can perform an analysis of sorts and Uh, deliver data to the customer that says, we looked at these different areas of your business and we've identified ways that we think we can make you more profitable. And I'll I'll also tell you, it's never been a more exciting time to be in packaging. E-commerce has changed the landscape significantly. Um, You have transportation pressures like we've never had before. You have a shortage of drivers. Uh, So transportation costs are going up. You have a labor situation until just a month ago that was almost Um, historic in nature, 3.7% unemployment. So if you look at all of the pressures that were going on for our customers, whether they be manufacturers, which of our 1,100 purchasing customers, 400 of them make something, uh, about 600 of them distribute something. So we've got a really diverse and wide-ranging group of customers, small and large, that have a lot of different challenges. So we wanted to be able to break it down and and look at the different parts that affected their packaging and their operations. So number one is damage. Um, Few people know this, but the the most way to make your company more sustainable is to eliminate damage. So everybody wants to talk about sustainability as it relates to recyclability, reusability, uh, and things along those lines. But really the number one way, and especially in the e-commerce world, is to eliminate damage. So if you think about all the things that go into reshipping a product because it was broken, the broken one goes into the landfill. Generally, you've got to reship, reprocess. You have the transportation, the supply chains in and around that are that are um, that are supporting that activity. The number one way to reduce or, or to be more sustainable is damage. So we focus there. We focus on freight. We focus on labor. E-commerce is really interesting in the packaging world that we're in because historically it was retail. So used to be that all of the retail products were bought at the beginning of the year. They were in the stores by September, and whatever wasn't there wasn't selling for for the Christmas season. Now, fast forward to today, where certain retailers have 50% of their sales ship between Black Friday and the day after Christmas. So the packaging side of the world is is much deeper and much more important. So one of our pillars, and these things I'm referring to we call our pillars of profitability, is – customer experience. We never really had the opportunity to do anything with customer experience because we only ever shipped to retail. Retailers put it on the shelves and it was their job to to provide that customer experience like a Saks Fifth Avenue. The idea being to get their product to jump off of the shelf and into the customer's cart. So we now are tasked to provide that Saks experience in Mrs. Smith's kitchen. You know, She opens the box and angels sing and lights come down from above. And we're trying to to have the same experience that she would in a Manhattan marble clad store. So um, we broke it down into a very quantitative uh, process where we go and look at those specific things inside of the customer. And generally there's two and a half to three opportunities, sometimes more, but usually when we come back and and reveal our findings, there's opportunity inside of these customers to reduce freight. And usually damage is, is, if it's one, it's rare because if you have damage, then you're calling us immediately. You're calling a packaging provider. You cannot tolerate damage. So usually if we come into a calm environment, you'd say, how's your damage? Is it less than 1%? Yes, it is. Okay, we'll keep our eyes on it, but let's look at the other five initially because most people, if their stuff's breaking or not making it from point A to point B, they're going to be on the phone. quickly. So we, we wanted to break down into something that was quantifiable and then mix in the idea that Freight's never been more expensive. Labor's never been more expensive and less available. And then when you throw in the customer service part, which, which retailers and e-tailers now refer to customer lifetime value or CLV. So it's not exclusively about what that sale is worth. It's about all the future sales and what you could jeopardize if that bad customer experience resulted in them going
0: to another provider. So all those things are great. And we're talking about in the academic world, what we call a market orientation, what the customer needs, as opposed to what I can just produce and sell to a customer. And you're dead on. And that's where you guys have been so successful. But now I'm going to ask you to turn the lens internally for a moment. The customers are screaming, I need this, I need this. But as A non-Fortune 500 business, you have so many resources that you can deploy in so many ways. So think about the capital that you have, the people that you have, the facilities that you have. How much change did you have to make in those to meet the needs of the customers, or did you build on what you had and made it fit to make the customer experience what it has become? A little
1: bit of both. So if you, uh, so one piece or one half of that being infrastructure, and what did we have to do to, to keep up with the demands of our customer? And the big piece of that was investment in software. So we had automated um, every single piece of our business. And by automation, I also mean software. I don't want to confuse mechanical automation with not being, being the only type of automation. Data automation is, is absolutely a huge piece. So investments in ERP systems drawing CAD systems, uh, telematics for our vehicles. So we have about 12 different software platforms that we deploy and they're all integrated in some fashion. The vast majority are connected and talking to each other in some way. Some reside here and others reside in the cloud. So the first thing that we did from an infrastructure or, or a big investment in the last, Uh, I would say seven or eight years, we brought a big ERP system live in 2013, which kicked off a good portion of it, um, has been into uh, software and data and the ability to, uh, to collect data, mine data, and more importantly, convert it into Intel because data is just data. When you convert it into Intel, you can actually action on it and make different choices and better choices. So that was number one. The second piece on the absolute other side of that is people. Our investment in people is, um, is more than it's ever been in both quantity and quality. We have more engineers on staff than we've ever had in our history, and we create a lot of intellectual property, which is something that we didn't do when I first got here when I was a kid. We had a, uh, a gentleman who joined the company from the Galeno Martin Company back in the 50s who, who started and, and uh, ran our box manufacturing plants. And he created a lot of intellectual property, but it was on the back of a napkin and and, uh, not nearly as sophisticated as we do today with tools like um, Fusion and SolidWorks and AutoCAD Inventor. So we now have a lot of engineers that are running around and creating a lot of intellectual property and digging deep into the customer's challenges and trying to understand what the opportunities are and then form-fitting a solution for them and to them and then doing it in mind with capital investment, return on investment, all of those pieces that make the economics work. So not just solving a problem, but also being very cognizant aware of the business and the economic aspect to make sure that it all fits together. The the, the solution is a success, but it also meets the financial demands and requirements of the customer.
0: So let's go back. If it was your great grandfather, he had employees that knew how to take animal fat, spread it on cardboard, adhere it and make it happen. And they were probably the best workers at that time that he could probably hire. And today you now have people dealing in bits and bytes and AI and how do we think about the engineering problems that customers have. How common has that been in your development of your employee base to be pivotal to be flexible and how important is that in the way you run your business today that has allowed you to go down Main Street at one point but be able to veer to Elm Street when you need to
1: it's critical um, so you know the, the, I am fortunate I get to talk in a, a lot of different forums and one of the biggest questions I get is you know what gets you out of bed is it cardboard boxes no it's not cardboard boxes by any stretch um, it's innovation so I am completely driven by innovation. And that comes from curiosity. So a lot of the people that are around here that we're looking for and we look to hire are driven by exactly the same thing. They're driven by curiosity. So take that and then mix that with a very high level of commitment and a very high level of coachability and figure it out factor. And you have a lot of the people that are running around here now. So, I mean, we have to pivot a lot. I mean, there's a lot of different opportunities that we get. Um, some are things that are very attractive that, that look like demand that another part of the industry or someone's not serving or servicing which is a huge space for us because we're so agile Um, and then our other pressures that that uh, are squeezing our margins or squeezing our profitability could put us in jeopardy of extinction and we end up having to pivot in that way too Um, so everyone around here has innate curiosity that's one of our, our key hiring factors and a very high level of commitment and the commitment is important because you know, one of our favorite sayings or, 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 or our favorite uh, formulas is E equals R times C. And what it stands for is efficiency equals right times commitment. And it's just a simple way of saying that as long as you're committed, you don't have to be right all of the time. And it gives you that ability to pivot at high speeds and still be successful, even though you might have missed a little bit.
0: So let's go back just a little bit. And then I'm going to bring you to today. When you went to the automation side of the business several years ago, vastly different than how the business started how involved were the employees in those decisions and helping to roll that out or how much of it was top coming to down and having to find different people to put on the bus to make that happen
1: that was uh, i think they probably all thought i was a little bit insane on that one and there's been some moments in our history in that regard where it was a, enough outside of our core business or enough outside of our lane and that not everybody quite saw it early. We've always been involved in the automation side, but at the end of the line. So if you think about setting up a box, putting the material inside, closing it. So we've always had some automation capabilities, but not nearly as significant as they are now. So as, as historically we've been working on the end of the line, our customer would say, hey, you're pretty, pretty good back there. Can you come upstream, assemble, do different things that are upstream in the process and can you get involved? And for the longest time, the answer was, no, that's not us. That's an authorized systems integrator, or an integrator of some kind. And then three years ago, or coming into three years ago, as labor started to get tighter and tighter, our customers started to ask us the questions more frequently. And we had partners that we use in and around the area. And I noticed that they became less less responsive. Lead times were going out significantly. And there was all of a sudden this void in the market that I identified where there was a tremendous and growing demand, but there was not any growing supply. And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, that business, the automation business, is incredibly risky. Um, you buy expensive machinery, you bring on engineers, you make massive investments. And then on the backside of that, there's a massive selling cycle and a very long selling cycle. So you have to fund the innovation for a very long period of time before you see the fruits in closing orders and, and developing applications. So. Uh, in that regard while we had a lot of talent it wasn't the exact same talent as the mechanical engineers and electrical engineers who were really inventors at their core i mean uh, curious and innovators crazy in a crazy way i mean our mechanicals are our, our inventors if you look at a lot of the applications that we work on they are one-off customs they are solving a very specific problem in a very specific application so back to your original question I'm not sure everybody saw the vision quite the way that I did, and I did have to go outside. The uh, the vast majority of the members of our automation team are external. They were brought in from the outside. We have one or two that came in and and were a great fit there because we also do our service and repair there, but um, that was one where it looked like, probably looked like the outside. I was veering way out of our lane, and, and that's usually when you get clipped is when you get outside of your lane, but it wasn't really because... They were there's a lot of synergies there. The automation business is very synergistic with our packaging business because 100 percent of our automation customers buy packaging. So we already had these eleven hundred relationships. The demand was incredibly high, which just meant that customers that may not have given somewhat of an upstart automation company. A shot gave us a shot. It was, well, you're kind of the only guy around right now. So why don't you come in and have a go? And fortunately, our team was talented enough and we had the capacity to fill in and and start to get a foothold in that business, and now we've got a really good foothold.
0: So let's come into today, let's talk a little bit about just the mid-Atlantic, but I'm gonna let you take it where you'd like to. We're known in our economy for, of course, the federal government, higher education, healthcare, but we're really not a manufacturing environment relative to some of the areas of the country. If we look at what's happened here in the last eight to 10 weeks, what we've realized quickly is that so many of the things that we now see as critical weren't produced here. And now we have supply chain interruption, demand increase and in supply, oops, where is it? Sure. You've made a couple of pivots in your business in the last eight weeks that probably people a year ago would have said you were crazy if you said, hey, we're going to go into making masks. Talk a little bit about what you saw happening in the market and how you pivoted and were able to pivot to try to meet an emergent demand that wasn't going to wait six months for you to develop it.
1: Yeah. So the interesting story. We have a team in California right now. So two things about, uh, about innovating and, and being what would be considered, again, outside of your space at a very opportune time. We have a team in California right now that is helping to bring an Adidas distribution center live. Brand new. First project like this we've ever run in our history. But we put together a team of about 27 people, and they are um, helping with the robotic deployment of a new system. So one day our, uh, our our project manager got to the building and they wouldn't let him in because the night before California had put a masks only policy in place. So again, like the rest of us, pretty scrappy, uh, high figured out factor contacted one of his friends that had a uniform manufacturing business in LA and drove over and they and picked up masks that they had switched over to and were making. So. Fast forward, we're talking, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Boy, I wonder if this mask thing seems like it could be real. So we uh, got in contact with that manufacturer, started manufacturing masks, bringing them across the country, and did it in a a little bit different way than we might have historically. So you have own packaging. Uh, My fiance owns her own business, which is called Tegler Construction and Supply, and we have a business that we own together. So we wanted to be able to leverage both markets at the same time, but didn't want to take on a necessary risk. So instead, what we did was we marketed it through social, we marketed it through email blasts. put a tremendous number of, of, uh, of contacts out through all of our channels. I think between the two of us, we have 12,000 contacts on LinkedIn. So marketed it directly that way at incredibly high speeds uh, and was able to get demand generated very, very quickly. Um, along the way, we also then started sourcing from a company that's now in New Jersey, all of whom had sent away all of their production, right? If you're making a uniform right now, you're not making any uniforms. So they were able to, in the, in the process, to bring back all of their people, all of their sewers, and now they sew somewhere between 2,500 and 4,000 masks for us a week. So completely out of the blue. Um, the, other, the other natural um, uh, progression too was an infrared thermometer. So one of our big, big uh, pieces here is, is while we're down, I and mean, one, one of my favorite sayings is, when armies aren't at war they train so the other thing we did in trying to learn new tricks we found a broker and a forwarder who connected us with a company in china and this week we'll land a thousand infrared thermometers that we'll distribute to our customers so for us it's people that are trying to reopen distribution centers manufacturing facilities so we're just trying to be there to help them open open safely um and and Keep up with whatever the demands of the government are going to be so they can get back and get productive as quickly as they can.
0: So now let me take you into the future. So if you were will, will agree with me that we as a country are going to look at things that were produced overseas that we're now going to deem to be critical and we're going to need to have them be here. What process are you going to go through thinking about what does Arnold Packaging do? to be a leader in the future, or do you wait to see trends happen and then capitalize on them as they occur? A little bit of both. So, I mean, one
1: thing that I can tell you that's absolutely true from this, this pandemic and the situation is a lot of uh, organizations, government organizations, private, public have been exposed. You know, we, we didn't realize exactly how weak we were in any number of spots, and Uh, And and unfortunately, for some of those organizations, they're going to get exposed to the point where they fail. And we'll see as the opening restarts here in the next, hopefully, couple of few weeks. um, What the failures are, I hope they aren't that significant. But the other thing, and and in that process, we got exposed as to how this this offshoring and outsourcing of manufacturing has truly affected the country, whether it's gowns, gloves, you know. All of these industries and businesses that that started here or were here at some point through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and we let go away for any number of reasons. And primarily the reason they went away um, was because we couldn't get our productivity where we needed it to be to make it here cost effectively. So if you look at um, our automation business, and I'm always very quick to say, don't get hung up on the word automation. What we are is a productivity company. Our job is to look at your current output and your current input and make sure that they're in line. So the real cause of outsourcing away from the United States wasn't exclusively cheap labor. That's only the denominator. The the full um, uh, is, is output divided by input. So if you can't improve your output commensurate with your input, then you're not going to be productive enough to be profitable. So that's why the business is left. So if you just flip that back around, you'd say, okay, what are the natural businesses that we can get productivity in line where we can compete in a global marketplace? A. And then if you bring it down into the mid-Atlantic and more specifically Maryland, what resources do we already have in place to be able to leverage it? And I'll tell you a bunch. Um, One is education. We have one of the, the most robust and capable education uh, platforms anywhere in the world. You know, you've know, got Hopkins and UMBC, which is renowned for STEM. Um, you've got some, some local uh, colleges that are doing some great, very, very um, specific work. University of Maryland engineering is fantastic, aerospace. So education, we have a decided advantage. And then if you just go a little bit to the east of here, you have TradePoint Atlantic, which is a 3,400 acre um, industrial facility that, that is adding business and customers like crazy. Deepwater Port, they're going to dig out the uh, Howard Street Tunnel for for double-decker containers. So we've got some resources here that are are significant and an education base and a labor force that is absolutely wonderful. And there's some things that we can leverage. So I would be looking for industries where we can make that connection in in the productivity quotient and say, yes, we can get our input and our output aligned such that we can make it here. If you talk to manufacturers, and we have a bunch of them, the the China piece is is concerning and very uncertain, whether it's the amount of time inventory stays on the water, the length and size of the supply chains, uh, the threat to intellectual property, and and what China does in demanding that transfer of intellectual property to start up and and grant access to their billion people. It's a huge concern. And, And if you look at companies like Stanley, Black, and Decker, they're trying to make it where they sell it. there's a lot of other people now that I think through this event are going to take an even harder look at the risks of having a supply chain that's halfway around the world uh, with the intellectual property pieces. And they're going to start to identify some of those costs that just became incredibly uh, visible through this entire process. And then when they figure those costs in, it's going to change. They're going to start to acknowledge what it truly costs to produce overseas. It's going to open windows to bring it back here.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to put you in the the, the role of the gambler, right? The, the the, uh, The investor. If I gave you a bucket of money outside of what you do at Arnold, but now given that you've seen the environment, you've got a thesis for how this is all going to work, and I told you you had to go make some bets, where are we going to make the greatest impact with our labor force, our productivity, and our ability to bring the economy back, if you were able to do that with unlimited dollars, where would you go make those bets today here in the Mid-Atlantic? And you
1: asked me to do it with Arnold Packaging and Arnold Automation. Are you asking me to do it as somebody no, that can do anything I want to do. Of,
0: outside of Arnold, I'm just saying with your knowledge, with your acumen, with your insight, where would you go? Therefore, nothing stops you because all you have is dollars, where would you go? What connectivities would you make, and how would you make that happen? I would go
1: towards I would go towards product manufacturing in the um, in the mid level. So by mid level, I mean on the on the higher technical end, not super high end. Obviously, Silicon Valley is is a uh, is a differentiator globally. If you look at the things that just don't seem to to leave the United States, the intellectual property that's created in Silicon Valley, but If you look one level down at the assembly of different things, right? I mean, we proved very quickly that we had the ability to pivot and make ventilators and things along those lines. And one of the ways we did it was by simplifying them, you know, somehow when you're put under that immense pressure, you figure it out in ways you wouldn't have figured out in the past. So I would be looking at mid-level assembly. And the reason I would be doing that is because the technology costs are coming down exponentially as we speak. Robotics, things like collaborative robotics have never been less expensive. Um, And the beauty of collaborative robotics is you don't have to have all of the safety and and, uh, fences and gates and cages that you did historically. So it's bending the cost curve. The second piece of that is vision and the ability for machines to see and do different processes that they wouldn't have been able to do before, but also do it very cost effectively. So if you take that level or those type of products that are being manufactured, And then you can apply to them all of these new innovations in, and when I saw automation here, I mean mechanical automation, robotics, vision, AI, there's an opportunity to bring those products back overseas, especially the things that are a little on the larger side. So when you get back into the freight and you look at products that have higher cubic volumes, they are less efficient to move through the supply chains because they're larger and they come in with higher landed costs. So I'd be looking in that middle section there to pick off products that are a little more technical in nature, right They have to be a little more technical, um, but then also are a little towards the larger side, meaning that they have a higher cost of freight per unit, a higher cost to land. And then I would be looking at, at products that you need faster speed to market. The innovation for a lot of companies is slowed down because of how long it takes them to land the products and how long it takes them to pivot on new designs. It's hard to change things significantly when you have six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks in your supply chain to be able to sell through that inventory and make the next turn. If you look at additive manufacturing, which is just a pretty way of saying 3D printing, that is changing the landscape on how quickly companies can go to market. It used to be that 3D printers were only for 1Z, 2Z prototype. Now you're starting to see from companies like HP and some of these other providers, you have three-dimensional printing that is production production. Oriented, you can get 10,000 parts. You're not tooling up thousands and thousands of dollars with injection molders, which means this tool up time and tool down time is much more fast. Rapid prototyping. So those type of that space is really interesting to me and the ability to invent a product that's differentiated that requires some assembly, but also in an industry in a market that could be subject. Um, to a lot of of movement or a lot of innovation. So you'd be able to pivot very quickly and still making things and iterating quickly, not wildly iterating, but you'd be able to make tweaks to your product. It's not like a car, right? Where you wait six years, you make a car, six years later, you're going to retool or eight years later, you're going to retool. You can be making really great product enhancements based on real-time feedback, social media sets, this feedback sets this survey says, right? So you have all of that information coming back real time. If you can combine that with the ability to respond real time,
0: then you've got a great opportunity. So the last piece of that puzzle I'm going to throw to you because you've dealt with it. We're going to have unemployment numbers that we haven't seen since the great depression. How difficult will it be in your estimation if your thesis is correct and these investments are made and these businesses are formed to do that, how difficult will it be to bring the employment base that is out of work into the work world? Can they meet that demand that will be needed by these people doing this? Or will it take a longer period of time because automation and where that manufacturing will be will not meet that worker where they sit today based on their acumen?
1: Look, there, there are segments that will be able to deploy quickly, um, and that's either the big, because they have a skill set um, that, that will be aligned with what the needs are. But there's there there will be a, a decent amount, a decent amount, a reasonable amount of reskilling and retraining. The other part of the automation that's today is it's becoming more user friendly and easier. So a lot of the user experiences and user interfaces are are easier to use now, even though they're incredibly more technical they're also easier to use. So yes, you will have to reskill and you'll have to retrain some people along the way. But at the same time, the tools have never been better. You know, We're talking on video conference. There's some things that have changed as a, a result of the pandemic, like video conferencing, for example. Um, there are certain parts of our business that should have always been video. There should have been things we always had done through video and they'll stay that way. The same opportunity exists to train, right? We have been training a tremendous amount Um, through things like Khan Academy, Simple Google, YouTube, we've studied uh, Six Sigma, we've studied mechanical industrial process engineering. Those same tools can then be used to help in that reskilling process so that those same people can be incredibly productive operating machines. It's a a task, there's some doing, but the, the benefits and the payback are going to be exponential.
0: What's the one thing that's going to really stop all this transformation from happening, in your opinion? It's going to take some really smart thinking to overcome it, because nothing hard is ever easy.
1: Yeah.
0: What's it gonna be? Yeah, it's in your
1: opinion. Ask me that question again. I'm sorry, I got a little bit of a
0: There's gonna be something that's gonna be difficult to overcome in this economy. There's going to be something difficult to make happen. You've seen a lot of things. So in your opinion, what is that one thing that's gonna be really difficult and it's gonna take some real creative thinking on behalf of the entire community, be it political, economic, education, et cetera, to come together to overcome that won't appear to be easy on the surface, but is able to be done.
1: Look, I think it's going to take some patience early. I think one of the one of the early uh, pieces, it's going to take some patience, and it's going to take um, high speed evolution, right? I would say not the revolution is tough, but it's going to take evolution that's faster than usual. But but I've never seen an environment where that could happen um, better faster, more efficient. We already were well on our way right before this particular pandemic event hit. You know, The the, the economy was moving along at a tremendous pace. And I think we've learned, hopefully, that that we have, I know here in our company, but I hope the, the country has learned a lot of new tricks as a result of this. So I do think it's going to take a little bit of patience right on the immediate edge of this. But my hope is that we, we take a good hard look at all of the, the places that we were exposed and then compare that to all of the resources that we already have in place, one of which is 22 million unemployed people. You know, we need to understand who those folks are and why they were put at risk. I mean, what is the definition of the essential? You know, I hadn't paid very close attention to that word until I had to define our organization as essential or non-essential. So whatever it would be that that would be Keeping those individuals from being essential, we need to figure that out, and we need to we need to put the things in place to make sure that they all are essential to look forward.
0: To listen to the remaining podcasts in this series and learn more about SCH Capital, please visit schcapital.com.